Good morning, everyone. My name is Eugene Cho, and it is a privilege and an honor to join you for worship today. I want to take a moment to thank your staff, your pastors, your interns for their hospitality as well. Now, I have a slight problem here. The problem is at the church where I pastor, the sermons go about 60 minutes. And that's the challenge. And so pray that we end on time. With that in mind, I want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our word for today. God, thank you again so much for the joy and the privilege that it is to be able to gather, to study your word, to greet our fellow brothers and sisters and our neighbors, to worship you in song. God, now at this time, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, Amen. If I may, I want to reread the scripture from Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24, but I want to read the message translation written by Eugene Peterson. It reads like this I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I think to myself, that's harsh. It's quite judgmental. And it's possible that you might be thinking that in your own mind right now, but this is the reason why, even in our time this morning, it would help to get a little context of the story. And so for the first few minutes, I want to explain to you the context of the book of Amos and then spend the rest of our time sharing with you, I hope, three things that we can learn from our passage today. The truth is, in our world today, even within the church, it's quite possible that many of us know little about Amos. In fact, when you think about names, we often know that names like Isaiah or Jeremiah are names that we see among names of friends or babies or children. But it's very rare for us to encounter a student, a neighbor, or a friend named Amos. Now, Amos lived between the 7th and 8th century. For those who like history, park your mind or imagination in 750 BC. He lived in the southern region, in the southern kingdom during this time. He lived in a small town called Tekoa. Now, I'm not familiar with Boston, but imagine a small town 
12 miles south of Boston, and that's a small town called Tekoa. Now, he had two jobs before he was called into this work as a prophet. His two jobs, he was a shepherd and a farmer before God called him into prophetic work. Now, it's really interesting that he labored in these two areas, shepherding and farming. And I say this because if you were a parent during the time of Amos, you would likely look at your children and then looked at Amos and said, kids, don't be like Amos. Now, for a few reasons. You see, they also had a sort of a hierarchy of jobs. And on the bottom of that hierarchy of jobs were shepherds and farmers. You did not want your children to aspire to become shepherds or farmers, and certainly to be called into prophetic work. In our culture today, when you look at someone and said, that person is a prophet, or that person has prophetic voice, it's always seen in a good light. You need to know that in the time of Amos, in the time of the scriptures, to be a prophet was to be misunderstood. To be a prophet meant you were hated and vilified. Listen, if you had children during the time of Amos, you grabbed your kids and said, son, daughter, don't be like Amos. So how is it that Amos was called into prophetic work? As a shepherd and a farmer, specifically, he specialized in something called fig trees. And he had a small business. Imagine a small farmer's market in Tacoa. He would take his product to the local farmer's market in Tacoa and now imagine supply and demand. Because he wanted to grow his business, he went to the local farmer's market, tended to his customers, but then he began to travel from neighborhood to neighborhood, section to section, region to region, and it's during this time that God messes him up. Now, I specifically want to use this language about messing us up because in our very convenient, consumption-centric culture, we often love a gospel that comforts us, but we rarely love a gospel that disrupts us and messes us up. The truth is the gospel does both. Why? Because we need both in our lives. I pray that the Holy Spirit would comfort you encourage you and exhort you, but I also pray that this morning that the Holy Spirit might disrupt you as well from the dangers of comfort. And so here's Amos, he travels from region to region, and from the southern region, he begins to travel up north to the northern region, and during this time, the northern region was known for its opulence and for its wealth. It was plentiful in resources and such. But as Amos begins to travel, he also realizes an incredible distinction and division between the who's in and the who's out. 
those who have and those who don't have. And he begins to see the injustice, the brokenness, and it pains him. He begins to see the exploitation of the rich to those who are poor. But more specifically, he begins to be disturbed by religious people who believed in God, who believed in Yahweh, who began to perpetrate a theology that explained why people were the way that they were. And it begins to disrupt him and disturb him. In fact, it disturbs him so much that he begins to have a hard time sleeping. I know this sounds really awkward. I pray that in the midst of many good nights sleeping, you would also encounter restless nights. In some ways, you could say that Amos became woke as he traveled and saw the disparity that was going on, and it began to disrupt him so much that he realized this, I must say something, I must do something. In fact, as he preaches up north as a prophet, he goes to a temple called Bethel, and he encounters a priest by the name of Amaziah, and it's in that context he says those very things. I can't stand your religious meetings. This is what the Lord, your God, says. I can't stand your religious meeting. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making, and he goes on. Now, what's the modern translation of that modern translation? It simply means that God is saying, if you and I are not changed into the character of God, a God who loves mercy, justice, and compassion, then what we're doing here this morning, this is what God is saying, what we're doing this morning is simply a show. And God is sick of our shows. If we exit those doors, go back to our respective homes or communities or jobs, and we're not awakened to loneliness or pain or suffering or exploitation or apathy, if it doesn't change us in some way, then this morning we've participated in a good show. And it works in a consumption culture. Good music, amazing music, prayers, Amazing acoustics, an angry Asian person preaching. <laughs> it's a good show. And God says, I'm sick of your shows. So what are three things that we can learn from this passage so that we might be more about the embodying, the living out, rather than being in love with the ideas of mercy, justice, and compassion. Well, there's three things that I'd like to share with you, if I may, in our limited time. The first is that it is good for us to really own that Amos was a shepherd and a farmer. See, in our culture today, I think we've already glossed over this, but he literally was a no one. The bottom of the rung, and yet 
God chooses him. And it's good for us to acknowledge that in one of the finest institutions in the world, that while God can use Harvard graduates, it's also really good for us to acknowledge God can use the shepherds and the farmers. God can use anyone and everyone. That means that right now, if you are breathing, God is able to use you to be a mouthpiece of hope, faith, and love, to be a mouthpiece, an agent of mercy, justice, and compassion. If you were to read the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, friends, with the exception of Jesus, only has stories of imperfect women, men, and children, and God is able to use them. This is good news for us because I'm going to make the big assumption that just like me, you are also imperfect and broken. For example, Adam and Eve lied, concealed, and accused. God does not give up on them. Abraham and Sarah were old, which meant back then they were no longer useful to society. They had serious marriage issues. Noah was a drunk, Jacob was insecure, Joseph was abused and sold into slavery by his own brothers. Imagine Thanksgiving in that family. Moses had a stuttering and confidence problem, was also a murderer. Elijah was depressed. Gideon was poor, which meant that in that cultural context, he was cursed by God. Rahab was a prostitute. David had a list too long for the sermon. Jonah was rebellious, unwilling to listen to God's instructions, hated the Ninevites. John the Baptist was just weird. Martha was a workaholic. The Samaritan woman had numerous failed relationships, ostracized in her own community. Thomas had doubts. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the other political party. Paul was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. Timothy was timid. What's my point? Good news, add your name to this list. That's really good news. That means we should never abdicate the responsibility of discipleship unto others. And in our world today, it's so convenient to sit in our sofas and chairs and watch our cable news and judge others, and yet we do nothing. You have to realize the work of justice is always and often local. It's in the bedrooms. It's in the dining rooms. It's in our campuses. It's in our neighborhoods. That's the first thing. The second thing is to share with you the importance of theology. The importance of theology is not reserved for women and men that are dressed in black robes. It's for all of us. It's how we believe which informs how we seek to live. In other words, the reason why we care about justice, the reason why we care about the message of Amos is not because it's a fad or a trend or a political issue. It's not an event or a clothing accessory that we wear on and off at our convenience. When you read the scriptures, the word of God, you cannot read it without sensing the deep, deep conviction and compassion and passion that God has for justice, mercy, and compassion. 
Isaiah 61, 8 declares, I, the Lord, love justice. This is why, as the people of God, it ought to matter to us. If I could just use or ask you to use your imagination on this lectern, this pulpit, I want you to imagine a box. Now, I know it's ridiculous to put God in a box, but use your imagination. There's a box on this pulpit. And this box represents the character of God. If we were to extract love out of God's character, you should all be furious because how can we speak of God without the love of God? If we were to extract grace out of God's character, the only reason why you and I are able to be here worshiping God is because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You would tell Reverend Dr. Walton, never invite this guy back. If we were to extract holiness out of God's character, Isaiah, in his human finitude, trying to grasp the infinitude of God's holiness, the only thing Isaiah can say is to repeat himself, you are holy, holy, holy. So my question to the church, including Christians and especially Christians who would think that justice and Jesus are competitors is what happened in the church that we've extracted justice out of God's character and called it an issue. A political thing, a liberal thing, a progressive thing. We care about justice because Justice matters to God. Now, what does that look like? Well, this is where I wish we had more time. But I want to offer you my third thing. And the third thing is, while justice is messy and at times nuanced, complex, and challenging, I believe that justice becomes personal, becomes real in our lives when we begin to look at people in the eyes. When we look at people in the eyes. Now, we don't have enough time for me to look at every single one of you in the eyes. It would also be awkward. <laughs> but when you see someone, what you're saying is literally, I see you. That's what you're saying. As Christians, when you see someone, you're saying, not only do I see you, but I believe that you are created in the image of God, wonderfully and fearfully made, that God's purpose, God's destiny is upon your life. That's the reason why when you want to ignore someone, what do you do? You look away. At my church, when I ask our congregants, who here wants to volunteer to help clean the church? It's amazing. They look away. In our own home with our three kids, my wife and I, who here wants to volunteer to clean dishes? They're eating a delicious Korean for the wind meal. And the next thing you know, when we ask that question, they look away. My wife and I are like, we still see you. 
That's the reason why when you see a homeless person somewhere on that intersection and your car is parked, you want to avoid that situation. I confess to you there are times I simply pick up my phone for an imaginary urgent phone call or email. I'm not suggesting that you and I can fix and change everything that is broken or unjust in the world, but I would submit to you that one of the most important things that we do throughout the process of justice work is that we must look at people in the eyes to be reminded that they are created in the image of God. Whether they look like you, think like you, feel like you, or dare I say it, even vote like you, that a person, each and every human being, created in the image of God. Jesus performs amazing miracles, amazing. We could spend days upon days teaching, preaching about his miraculous power. But as I read the Gospels, as I read the Scriptures, the part of Jesus' ministry that compels me, captivates me, is that no matter how busy, hurried, pursued as he was, Jesus stops and looks at people in the eyes. The Samaritan woman at the well looks. My favorite story is this woman in the Gospels who's suffering from internal bleeding, which thus makes her unclean and unworthy, unable to enter into houses and spaces of worship, likely marginalized and ostracized by her own family and friends. She has this bleeding internally, and in her mind, she's working, worming through the crowd, thinking, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. She touches Jesus Praise God, she's healed. And then Jesus asks a ridiculous question. Now, I know we're not supposed to say there's such a thing as ridiculous questions, but that was a ridiculous question. Jesus asks what question? Who touched me? Why is it ridiculous? Because you're Jesus, you know everything. You think Jesus didn't know? You think Jesus was somehow surprised and said, ah, who touched me? I'm a perfect introvert. Who touched me? Or did Jesus, for the sake of this woman, for the men that were present, for every single person that was present, did Jesus want each and every person to know that in the kingdom of God, the king stops and looks at his subjects and say, I see you. And that's what we mean by the whole gospel. We need to be men and women about the whole gospel. As I close, what is the whole gospel? It means that may you and I never relinquish the good news that Jesus saves. That Jesus is good news, gospel, that he forgives sinners like you and I. But may we also know that it's not just about our own personal walk, save salvation with Jesus. 
Sometimes, if we're not careful, it becomes about a me, myself, and I, Christianity. The whole gospel says, yes, Jesus loves you, cares for you, has a plan for you, but Jesus also cares for the whole world. That Jesus cares about collective human flourishing. That the world matters to God. The poor, the suffering, the marginalized, the oppressed. That God cares about black and brown bodies and migrants and caravans. That God cares about each and every single person. Thanks be to God that God cares for each of us. And God invites us to be a part of the whole gospel. May we not be about empty worship. As you exit these doors in a few minutes, may your worship continue. God, we thank you again for your good news. May we not just be hearers, but doers of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.